Good morning. See, I have to say good morning. That's when they know to turn the lights on. So. Another December uh, has arrived, and with it, our traditional Christmas uh, sermon series. And, uh, and I can't imagine that any uh, sincere believer would ever get tired about what a loving Heavenly Father has done, who sent His only begotten Son. I don't think we'd ever, ever, ever think that's boring. And He did it to redeem a whole bunch of sinful human beings. And from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the Bible unfolds this amazing love story. Ken Ham, the founder of the Creation Museum, which is over in Kentucky, by the way, I thought I'd mention that. But he once wrote this, The only collection of books in the world that gives us a detailed history that enables us to fully comprehend the purpose and meaning of life is God's Word, the Bible. Over 3,000 times the Bible claims to be the revealed Word of God who created the universe and all of life and has, who has made himself known to humanity. And as we begin this series, uh, actually continuing this series, uh, I want us to take a fresh look at our need for a Savior. Our text actually is in the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. But before we can properly appreciate these verses, I want you to hear what one of my favorite writers and commentators says about it. J. Vernon McGee, along with other conservative Bible scholars, considers, now hear this, that he considers this third chapter of Genesis to be the most important chapter in the entire Bible. And he writes this, if you doubt that, read chapters 1 and 2, then jump over chapter 3 and read on into chapters 4 through 11 of Genesis. And what you will find is that there is a tremendous vacuum that has to be filled. That something's happened. For instance, in Genesis 1 and 2, we find human beings living in innocence. Everything is perfect. There's fellowship between God and man. But the moment you begin chapter 4, everything changes. In fact, all the way to chapter 11, here's what you find. Jealousy, anger, murder. Lying, wickedness, corruption, rebellion, judgment. And the question is, where did it all come from? Where did it all begin? Where did all this sin originate? It's something happened in chapter 3 that laid the foundation for our great need for a Savior. And I want to take a look at that today. Something happened significant. Quoting McGee again, he says, concerning chapter 3 of Genesis, here begins the great drama which is being enacted on the stage of human life and which 6,000 years is not yet completed. Here we find the divine explanation for our present fallen and ruined condition, the human race. Here we learn of the subtle devices of our enemy, the devil. Here we discover the spiritual effects of sin, man seeking to flee from God. And here we discern the attitude of God towards the sinner. And here we are taught of the gracious provision which God has made to meet our great need. And we learn that man cannot approach God except through a mediator. So let's begin 
Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, why the temptation? Well, you've got to go back to chapters 1 and 2. And we find that Adam, the first human being, was created innocent. But he was not righteous. You see, there's a difference. We need to understand what righteousness really means, what it is. Righteousness is innocence that has been maintained even in the presence of temptation. Are you familiar with temptation? Any recent experiences with temptation? Is anyone awake yet this morning here in the church? I ran across this. I love it. I've, I've already used it one time in the past. But maybe you relate to this. Uh, This was called an autobiography in five short chapters. Chapter one. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find my way out. Then chapter two. I walk down the same street. And there's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes me a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street, and there's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there, but I still fall in. Now it's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It's my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. And then chapter 5, I walk down a different street. I walk down a different street. Now that, that is the problem that we have. Temptation is either going to develop you or it's going to destroy you. It will do one of the two. And character must be developed. And it can only be developed in the presence of temptation. What's your response? Adam was created a responsible being. He was responsible to glorify God, to obey God, to serve God, and be subject to his creator. Man did not create himself. God did. And God laid down a certain restriction back in Genesis 2.16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any of the trees you want in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, this wasn't the only tree in the garden. There was an abundance of trees that had to produce fruit, I assume. So Adam and Eve didn't really need to eat from this tree at all. Now, there's an obvious question here. Where did this serpent come from, and what's his, his role in all this? And the Bible doesn't really say that as far as where he came from, but apparently the serpent was a, a, creation, a creature that Satan used. And in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, the Apostle Paul wrote this, For Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And so here's this creature with tremendous ability, apparently, and while there's no record here in Genesis, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 kind of gives you the origin of the, this creature. And I encourage you to check those verses out because that's not really our focus today. 
But back to verse 2, the woman said to this serpent, well, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Now, there were some problems with her account there, but at this point, Satan denies the word of God altogether. He says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, this powerful spiritual giant, you know, who's standing by during the whole event watching. Did y'all get that guy? She also gave some to him, and he ate. Now, isn't this interesting? Adam is right there with his wife listening, and apparently he could not pull up enough leadership ability to end the conversation and stomp the snake's head in the ground. Isn't that what you would have done, man? Isn't it interesting how how, uh, leadership challenges start even in the very beginning? Notice Satan's method, too. It was an appeal to the flesh. He said, this is, well, this is good for food. It was also an appeal to the mind. Oh, it's desirable for gaining wisdom. And verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see, before the fall into sin, Adam and Eve didn't have a conscience per se. They were completely innocent. You know, innocence is the ignorance of evil. But now everything's changed. They did not confess. They just attempted to cover up their sin. And verse 8 says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called out to him. God God called and said, Where are you? Now, I want you to notice that it's always religion that separates you and me from God. Christianity was never intended to be a religion. It's a relationship. In verse 10, Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And in another one of humanity's finest moments, the man said, this woman, you put her with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Again, not Adam's finest moment. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And after all the buck passing and finger pointing is over, comes the time for judgment. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will be eating dust all the days of your life. The serpent or snake or whatever, certainly not the slithering creature we think of today. But what's important here is what God's judgment upon Satan has a tremendous impact upon you and me. Listen carefully to Genesis 3 verse 15. This is the very first prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our Savior. 
He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to Satan now. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he, referring to this offspring, will crush your head, though you will strike his heels. Strange prophecy in a sense. But what he's foretelling us in this verse is that there's going to be a long and continued struggle between good and evil. And this frankly, is exactly what you find in the rest of the Bible. In John 8, 44, Jesus would one day say to the religious Jewish leaders who were constantly opposing him and giving him grief, he said, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And the Lord Jesus Christ made the distinction between the children of God and those that would be the children of the devil or Satan. Now, we all need to listen carefully at this point. Because Adam was the first or the the head of the human race. And all humans ultimately have come from this first man. What Adam did that day affected all of humanity. When Adam disobeyed his creator's instructions, that, uh, that was the first sin. And it resulted in his fall, as they call it, from a state of perfection. And just as God had warned them, the punishment for Adam's sin was death. But not only for Adam, but for all of his descendants, including you and me. Listen to Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Now, you might ask the question, well, why are we punished for what Adam did? It doesn't seem fair. Well, as the head of the human race, Adam represented each of us, and because we all came from Adam, we have inherited his sin nature. He sinned. He disobeyed God. So guess what? We sin. We also disobey God. None of us can raise our hand and say, well, no, wait a minute. I never sinned. I, you know, no, we've all sinned. The Bible says we all sin and fall short, short of the glory of God. If instead of Adam, it had been any of us facing with the decision to eat or not eat, we would still have done the same thing. The result would have still been the same. So the Bible says in Genesis 3-7, after Adam and Eve sinned, then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now this wasn't because they recognized that they had no outer clothing. They recognized they'd lost their righteousness, their standing before God. Their innocence was gone. Adam and Eve were no longer perfect in a sense. They were now polluted creatures in their hearts and their flesh. And they were exposed before the justice of God's law. And all fig leaves and other feeble attempts to cover what they had done. Isn't this a sordid, miserable beginning? But anyway, no man, no woman can hide our sinfulness from the sight of a holy God. God sees us 
clearly. He knows us. He knows our sins, our impurities, our rebellion. In fact, the Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags before a holy God. All of our efforts to be good, all of our efforts and attempts to cover ourselves fails. As Jeremiah 17, 9 reminds us, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? You see, we cannot make ourselves acceptable to God, especially a holy God, a pure God, because of all the imperfections that we are born with, that we come equipped with. What a horrible existence. What in the world are we to do? As sinners, we can't live in the presence of a holy God, obviously. Nor can we make it to heaven on our own works. That won't work at all. Who would, we would be separated from God forever and live in our evil, sinful condition for eternity. Or as Paul says in Romans seven twenty four, what wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And the answer to that question was provided by our loving creator and is recorded in Genesis 3.15. Now, this statement sums up the message of the... What well, I'm going to read to you in just a moment. Sums up the message of the entire scriptures. And it provided hope to Adam and Eve, but it also provided hope to their descendants, us. There is a way to be saved from the effects of sin, the, the consequences of sin, the residue of sin. And in this verse... God makes a declaration that summarizes what Jesus' entire earthly ministry would be about. In fact, it is the whole meaning of why we celebrate Christmas as well. So here it is again, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. God is talking to the serpent. And I will put enmity between your offspring and hers. And he, talking, talking about who's the he, it's the offspring of a woman. He, Jesus Christ, is who he's referring to. This promise, see, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, though you will strike his heel. Now, what does that mean? Well, Genesis twenty-two eighteen gives us further clues about the identity of this promised seed of a woman who will bruise the head of the serpent. God speaks to Abraham and says, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Centuries later, the Apostle Paul clarifies things in Galatians 3.16. The promises that were spoken to Abraham and his seed, his offspring. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, it's talking to, to many people, he says, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Jesus Christ. The Bible refers to one specific person who would be born of a woman, not born of man. A child conceived miraculously by God in the womb of a young virgin named Mary. But that's not all. It's also a great mystery to us fallible created human beings 
that the Creator God would even want to become flesh, would be willing to become flesh so that we sinful people would be covered, that we can live forever with Him. Jesus came to become sin for us by dying on a cross to suffer the penalty for sin. And then, and then because He's an infinite Creator, what does He do? Ultimate power, He rose from the grave, overcoming the curse of sin, defeating Satan and all of his minions. And Jesus came to take away sin and conquer the power of death in the grave. And God further illustrated what needed to be done to Adam and Eve by a very particular act in Genesis 3.21. Listen to what we read here. He made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. Fascinating picture. God killed at least one animal, the first blood sacrifice, to provide the coverings, the garments as a covering for sin. It was a picture of what was going to happen one day in Jesus Christ. Gospel of John, verse 129 says, The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it is only the covering produced by God which can cover the filthy rags of our sin. We have no human righteousness of our own. But Romans 10.9 tells every human being how you can obtain this covering. One of the most important verses in Scripture. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that, my friends, in a very simple nutshell, is the message of the baby born in Bethlehem. It's why we celebrate Christmas. This is the, 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 the overarching behaviors of all these players in this drama all coming together in a baby who's going to be born to one day take away the sin of the world. Starts with the creation of a perfect world. And because of sin, Adam's descendants, over time, we need a Savior. It's a message the church has preached for years and will continue to. Jesus stepped into history to become flesh over 2,000 years ago. So as we go into the Christmas season, my encouragement to you is is that you do pause on a regular basis. We're going to do it here on Sundays. But that you do pause in your Bible reading or in your prayer time or whatever and just thank God for the real reason we have this event called Christmas. And we're going to unfold even more important parallels as we continue through uh, over the next few weeks. But that's why we do what we do. That's why Christmas is not about just presents. It's not about just days off from work. It's not about all the festivities and all the things you see, especially not the world's version of Christmas. That is the biblical picture of what this season is supposed to be all about. I look forward to sharing some more about that with you later. Nick and I are enjoying this series. He'll be back up here next week. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for loving us so much 
that you gave your only begotten Son, that we would be able to have life with you for eternity. And even though we live in a fallen world that's all skewed and messed up, and the ideas behind Christmas are certainly not familiar much to us anymore like they used to be in the past, perhaps. But we're grateful that you've given reminders to us through the symbols of the Advent candles, the meaning of the things that we read about in the Bible, and the application of your great gift to us. While we were yet sinners, you sent Jesus into the world to die on the cross to cover our sins. And we're so grateful for him. We're so grateful to you. And as we meet around the, the Lord's table, you know, we also reflect this on the symbolism as we take this in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name, amen.